Or should I say, hey, members, welcome back to The Jacobin Show. This is, of course, our weekly live stream. Uh, if you're watching this live, you, of course, are a member. Thanks so much for subscribing to The Jacobin Channel and becoming a member. We're really happy to have you here. Paul, what's good? Not much. You know, I'm uh, thinking about COVID a lot. I think we all are. Um, I feel Indeed. like we're on the cusp of whatever the hell this next year is about to look like. Um, but other than that, I'm great, you know? Yeah, right. Except for the global pandemic that seems yeah. to be on an upswing, everything is fine. <laughs> right. Doing great. Well, on that note, you know, uh, I know that prior to this show, we had both been kind of talking about, you know, different things that were on our minds. And as you just sort of uh, hinted, the thing on our minds is COVID. Um, not just, you know, the pandemic itself, but I think that there is kind of renewed culture war around, you know, the vaccination stuff and then the mask mandates again. Um, so Paul, I know you have a few comments about unions and, uh, uh, uh vaccine mandates that we're going to get to in surprise. a little bit. Surprise, surprise. Paul right. is talking about unions. Huge surprise to everybody. Um, but before we let Paul uh, completely run away with unions. Oh, I actually also want to mention, if you are watching this live, um, you probably saw that our guest is David Dayen from The American Prospect. He's got a really great article uh, out in the print issue of The Prospect right now, which is Anatomy of an Anti-Union Meeting. Uh, this is a really great article that talks about a union drive at a meat alternative company called, uh, ironically, No Evil Foods. Uh, and Dayan goes into a lot of their union busting techniques. So I'm, I'm really excited to talk to him. Definitely check out that article. Uh, it's, it's a really interesting look into uh, what you might call the cutting edge of union busting. It's going to be um, a heavy labor episode. This is like perfectly designed to my taste. It's, it's a Paul episode. And uh, that said, uh, you know, definitely stick around after David Dayan to uh, hear some labor Paul. We've got Two, if I may say so myself, very good questions. From a loyal uh, viewer, very from, loyal viewer. From, Hasn't I, missed an episode. I, I tune into every episode. It's true. Um, yes, that's right. I have two questions for Labor Paul. Uh, so stick around for that. All right, should we do COVID? Yeah, let, let's do it. Let's, let's get it out it. of the way. All right. So what I want to talk about uh, for this show is basically the ongoing vaccine wars. So as we all know, thanks to the rapid spread of the Delta variant, COVID cases are rising again in the U.S. Some cities have reinstated mask mandates, and unsurprisingly, a number of Americans have doubled down on their commitment to turning an unprecedented health crisis into an excuse for a culture war. No, I'm not just talking about right-wing pundits like Tucker Carlson, although, of course, he racks up views and paychecks by stoking anti-mask and anti-vaccine sentiment. I'm also talking about an equally vocal set of self-righteous liberals in the media and the political class who are rushing headlong into the exact same COVID culture wars by displaying their unbridled contempt for the unvaccinated. Now, according to a very popular narrative that's going around at the moment, not being vaccinated at this point in the pandemic can only be explained by stubbornness, stupidity, or conspiratorial thinking. For instance, in a column this week, eviscerating the unvaccinated, the New York Times writer Charles Blow argued, quote, the simple truth is that all of this could have been avoided if all Americans eligible for the vaccine, and that's pretty much every adult at this point, had simply chosen to be vaccinated. 
But they didn't. They haven't. They're too dug in, too committed to the lies and conspiracies, too devoted to rebellion. Likewise, the CNN commentator Chris Saliza had this to say. The struggle to vaccinate enough Americans against the coronavirus in order to achieve herd immunity has produced frustration, anger, and a whole lot of people doing things directly against their best interests when it comes to their health. Maybe the most upside down, almost hurt my neck, bit of reality that's emerged from the politicization of what should be a public health issue, thanks Donald Trump, is this. The people at the most risk of being infected with the Delta variant of the virus are the least concerned about getting it. A July CBS News YouGov poll paints a stark picture of this remarkable disconnect. Asked whether they were concerned about the Delta variant, the dominant strain of COVID-19 in the United States, and the one that has led to a major surge in cases, almost three in four vaccinated people, 72%, said they were worried about it. Less than half, 48% of unvaccinated people said the same, which is, and this is a technical science term, bonkers, because, well, science. Quote, we're seeing 99.5% of deaths right now from COVID-19 in our country are happening among the unvaccinated. U.S. Surgeon General Dr. Vivek Murthy told CNN's Dana Bash on State of the Union in mid-July. In case you missed it, 99.5% of people who are dying from the coronavirus right now are not vaccinated. Which means, because again, math, that less than 1% of all COVID-19 deaths right now are among vaccinated people. Now, is it true that the vast majority of new cases are circulating among the unvaccinated? Yes. Is it true that there are anti-vaxxers who are conspiracy theorists, right-wing ideologues, or simply just misguided? Also, yes. That said, there's more going on here than just the bad behavior of anti-vaccine fanatics and the tinfoil hat crowd. Recall a poll from a few months back that found that a significant percentage of unvaccinated people said they were concerned about the cost of the vaccine even though, of course, the vaccine is free. That's not really much of a surprise given our incredibly confusing and cruel for-profit healthcare system, and especially the prevalence in that system of surprise billing and hidden fees. More recently, Kaiser found that uninsured Americans had the lowest vaccination rate of any group that they surveyed. Adding to that, last Friday, the journalist Bryce Covert noted that particularly for low-income people, there still exists a number of barriers to getting the vaccine. As Covert writes, quote, those who aren't yet vaccinated are much more likely to be food insecure, have children at home, and earn little. About three quarters of unvaccinated adults live in a household that makes less than $75,000 a year. They're nearly three times as likely as the vaccinated to have had insufficient food recently. And I just quickly want to mention that uh, in Bryce Covert's article, she also includes a pretty uh, stunning chart that, uh, you know, looks at how uh, vaccination rates break down among people who are likely to be food insecure or, you know, people with kids or essential workers or people who earn uh, not a lot of money. Um, and if you go and look through that chart, I think that the disparities are pretty striking. So what does this say about access? Why are food insecure and low-income people less likely than their affluent counterparts to be vaccinated if the vaccine is free and currently available to just about everyone? The truth is, there isn't just one single factor that we can point to as the one thing that's preventing people from being vaccinated. Instead, for so many working-class and low-income Americans, being unvaccinated is the result of a thousand different tiny cuts, all of which are inflicted by our bare-bones social safety net and our incredibly punitive capitalist system that's set up to make everything as difficult as possible for the poor. 
For example, the federal government has not mandated that employers give their employees paid time off to go get vaccinated. So if you're someone who's already struggling to pay bills or pay rent or put food on the table, and you know you won't be paid for the work hours that you miss to go get vaccinated, maybe it doesn't seem like it's worth it. Or think about the fact that many vaccine sites don't allow other people to come with you. Both childcare and elder care in this country are notoriously expensive, hard to come by, and certainly not guaranteed by the government. So if you have kids who need to be watched, or if you're a caregiver to elderly or disabled relatives and you cannot find someone to cover for you, it's going to be that much more difficult to find the time to get to a vaccination site. Finally, add to all of this the fact that the vaccine technically has not been approved yet by the FDA, and the CDC has continually changed or reversed their advice about indoor transmission, outdoor transmission, surface transmission, masks, and so much more, and it's not hard to see why some people have reservations. Now, the COVID vaccine is safe and effective, and many people who are hesitant could likely be convinced to come around to vaccination, but simply calling them evil anti-vaxxers who are destroying the country probably isn't going to be a very effective method of persuasion. What's more is that framing vaccination as only a matter of personal choice, rather than a confluence of choice, circumstances, economics, and politics, reproduces the personal responsibility mantra that's so beloved by the right. As Bryce Covert put it, quote, the current approach is to argue that access has increased and it's everyone's individual responsibility to get a shot. If you don't, it's on you. Once again, we've taken the cruelly American, ruggedly individualistic tactic of making this about personal responsibility, not about a systemic response, just as we did in combating the virus itself. What our government has to do, but is continuing to fail at, is to make it as easy as possible for people to get shots. Yes, on one hand, that does mean rolling out more incentives like offering money in exchange for getting vaccinated, which of course several states have already done. But even these incentives can backfire when local governments introduce unnecessary hurdles into the equation. According to Bloomberg News, at one vaccination site in the Bronx, people showed up expecting to receive $100 in cash or gift cards in exchange for vaccination. But once they were at the site, they were told that in order to get the money, they had to register online for a prepaid debit card, which would be mailed to them at an unspecified later date. As one nurse who was working at the site told Bloomberg, quote, it actually discouraged people to the point where they don't take the vaccine. Even beyond incentives like money that still ultimately rely on nudges, which is appealing to individuals' behavior, if we want to significantly increase vaccination rates in the U.S., what we really need are the same sweeping societal changes that the left has been fighting for for decades. We can already see that it's an uphill battle to vaccinate a critical mass of people in the U.S. without things like a national health care system, paid sick leave and family leave, and guaranteed childcare. Now, of course, it's unlikely that we'll be able to implement these programs overnight, but in the meantime, the government can do things like hold more vaccine drives at places like shopping centers, food pantries, schools, public housing complexes. They can organize door-to-door or phone outreach to talk with unvaccinated people who might have concerns or hesitations, and the Biden administration should push to expand emergency paid leave and childcare so people can take time to go get vaccinated without fear of losing wages or wondering how they'll care for their loved ones. If anything, our policy excuse me, our policymakers should treat this moment as a sober reminder of what can go terribly wrong when you spend decades shredding the social safety net and instead exclusively promote the gospel of personal responsibility. 
And finally, for the ultimate lesson in how not to inspire confidence in our ruling class when it comes to the pandemic, we only have to look to former President Barack Obama's 60th birthday bash on Martha's Vineyard last weekend. The event boasted a star-studded guest list of hundreds that included Jay-Z and Beyonce, Chrissy Teigen and John Legend, Eddie Vedder, and Don Cheadle. While some people who had been invited to Obama's birthday party declined and expressed reservations about holding such a large, flashy event at the exact same time that Obama's good friend Joe Biden has been pleading with the public to avoid such gatherings, plenty of other guests in attendance insisted that concerns about virus transmission were, quote, overblown. Here's what some of them had to say. Uh, Other people said, you know, this is really being overblown. They're following all the safety precautions. People are going to sporting events that are bigger than this. This is going to be safe. This is a sophisticated vaccinated crowd. And and this is just about optics. It's not about safety. That's right. The same crowd that's been bemoaning Sturgis as a death cult and deriding the behavior of, quote, spreadnecks, was totally fine with Obama's massive birthday party because it was populated by sophisticated vaccinated people. The whole affair was reminiscent of when politicians like Gavin Newsom and London Breed were caught dining out at high-end restaurants during the height of the pandemic. That is, right when they were scolding their constituents to stay home. Personal freedom for me, personal responsibility for thee. Just to wrap up, I want to say that I can think of no situation more appropriate than these ongoing vaccine wars to invoke the famous Michael Brooks quote, be ruthless with systems, be kind to people. Unfortunately, in this case, as in so many others, liberals have it completely backwards. And what no one's really talking about is, you know, we know for Jay-Z and Beyonce, since they're in the Illuminati, they automatically don't get COVID. So that's why (laughs) I just want to provide context. Like, that's why they don't need to vaccinate. Um, Yeah, I think some of the CNN commentators pointed that out after the clip got cut off. uh, (laughs) Like, you're right. Of course it got cut off. Mm. Yeah, um, that's true. The va- the ruling class is much more likely to read, reach herd immunity because so many of its members are, of course, in the Illuminati. So we right. must take that into consideration. That's right. Here on the Jackman Show, we give you the real news. Um, <laughs> but I mean, in all seriousness, what, what's kind of interesting here is that, you know, for, you know, CNN and MSNBC, the stereotypical Trumper who's against vaccinations, you know, they're going to scold them. Mm -hmm. But then when it comes to hesitancy among vaccines among black people, they really are overstating this narrative of skepticism because of um, things like the Tuskegee experiment. And I'm not denying that that's somewhat of a factor, but I I really feel like that's vastly overstated. And I Mm -hmm. think a lot of it comes back to these factors that you mentioned, which again, are going to affect, I think, black people disproportionately, given that they are disproportionately working class. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, just like you said, to really address this um, you know, we would need a much more robust, strong state, a strong social safety net. That really is how we can maybe start to get to address some of this. But um, it's amazing. So it's like no, no forgiveness for any of like a, a, a white person that's vaccine hesitancy. Then it's like over forgiveness, over stating this narrative of the Tuskegee experiment for black uh, mm-hmm. vaccine hesitancy. Mm-hmm. And it just really misses the mark on both of those. Completely agree. Um, and, you know, I think that that also gets to kind of one of the core problems with liberalism, which is that in many ways, it's just the flip side of the coin of conservatism, where you you think that some people deserve to be winners and other people deserve to be losers, right? So if you're a conservative, the people that you think deserve to be winners are 
what capitalists, you know, businessmen, whatever, uh, business owners, small business owners, and then the people who deserve to be losers are those that didn't work hard, uh, obviously the poor, you know, people who couldn't pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Liberals do the exact same thing, uh, except, you know, for them, the undeserving poor or the people who deserve to be losers are, you know, in many cases, as you said, these kind of the stereotype of the rural, like, unmasked, unvaccinated Trump voter, uh, which, of course, is code for, you know, a white working class person. Um, And I want to shout out there was another great piece in The New York Times by Sarah Smarsh, uh, where she talks about what we're talking about now, how among a lot of liberals, there is just a lot of rage, which on the one hand is sort of understandable because, you know, we've been dealing with this pandemic for a year and a half. Everybody hates being inside. Uh, It sucks to have to put on a mask again. Um, You know, again, you see the statistics that COVID cases are rising among the unvaccinated. And I think, you know, lots of people just kind of flip out. Um, And her piece is really great because she uh, she acknowledges that frustration and admits that, you know, she gives into it herself sometimes. But at the same time, you really have to look at, uh, I think, where it's coming from and, and and who it is that you're actually blaming. And I think, you know, what was so great about Bryce Covert's piece is that she really does get at some of the economic and societal barriers that still exist to getting vaccinated. Again, like, I just really want to stress, it's not one thing. It's not that, you know, uh, you, you can't point to one specific thing. Um, it's really just our system is set up to make things so incredibly difficult for the poor. So. Yeah. And one more point on this, I mean, not to like over glorify um, Cuba, but one of the inspiring things I've read and heard about with their healthcare system is that the doctors like regularly do home visits to their mm-hmm. patients. And there's a really good network set up around that. And I think, you know, you could imagine if a, a patient, even if they're vaccine skeptical, if they have a close relationship built over time, with their doctor or with some kind of medical provider that's always going to their home, I can imagine it being a lot easier for them to persuade them eventually to get the vaccine, you know, when they kind of know right. and trust the health system. Right. But again, that, that takes investment to, and of course, you know, our country being a lot bigger, that program would have to be a lot bigger, but you know, that takes investment that takes mm-hmm. like a belief in the a public version of healthcare that mm-hmm. we just don't have in this country. Yeah, something I didn't explicitly mention earlier is that one unfortunate effect of a completely eroded social safety net and, you know, a non-existent welfare state and a government that acts or that treats you as though you're on your own is that that really erodes public trust across the board, not just when it comes to vaccines, but for everything. Right. So if you look at countries that are basically uh, social democracies like the Nordic states, Trust in the government and public trust in just institutions in general is much, much higher in those countries, precisely because they know that their government will take care of them and isn't leaving them hanging out to dry. And I think when, you know, we think about vaccine hesitancy, a large part of it is low public trust, at least in the U.S. And that's I guess you could say that that's cultural, but that, again, is a byproduct of a completely eviscerated social safety net. And as I keep saying, a government that leaves you out to dry. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to cover something related to unions, very on brand, as always. Um, but, you know, this whole thing of vaccines and um, vaccine mandates is really bringing up an interesting question in the labor movement, especially when it comes to employer vaccine mandates. 
And I have to say, I don't really envy the position that many union leaders are in having to deal with this dilemma right now. And to be, to be clear, of course, I think people should get the vaccine. But if you're the head of a union and a significant portion of your membership is against the vaccine or hesitant, and you know that, it really does make it a lot more difficult for you to embrace, especially an employer vaccine mandate. So that because then it really seems like you as a union leader are taking the side of the employer against the, the worker or your members. And so, you know, recently Biden had said that all federal workers will be required to get a vaccine. And so Politico reported on the response from some of labor saying labor leaders called the move premature, complaining that it would prompt a litany of requests of exemptions and fearing it would only further alienate a percentage of their membership that was already unlikely to get vaccinated, according to two people briefed on the discussions. And so some allies of Biden, like everyone remembers the Firefighters Union, I think they were the very first to endorse Joe Biden. They have already said straight up that they won't obey the mandates. And so the political article goes on to say some unions say that because the vaccine has become so politicized, mandates from leadership would be less effective and only alienate certain members. Instead, they've pushed leadership to focus on incentive and outreach programs that have been affected at getting rank and file members vaccinated. Several unions have bargained uh, with companies throughout the pandemic to provide perks to workers. The Association of Flight Attendants, which has so far declined to explicitly endorse a vaccine mandate, negotiated an optional program providing three extra vacation days to United Airlines uh, flight attendants who received the vaccine. And so this is why I think it's so important for unions to have gotten out in front of this and been educating their members for a while and creating kind of like the flight attendants have in-house incentives. I think that is the most optimal approach because you don't want a situation where workers are only hearing about vaccines from their employers and the union is just following their lead. Because again, then it seems like the union leadership is taking the side of the employers against the members. Um, And so this situation does seem fluid. Originally, the American Federation of Teachers said they were against the mandate, but um, now I think this just came in yesterday, the president of AFT, Randy Weigarten, said they now support it. Um, let's look at a clip from her on Meet the Press talking about the vaccine mandates. You'd like to see a vaccine mandate, is my understanding. But what what does that mean for the teachers union? So let me first off, Chuck, thank you for having me on. And, you know, I've been around the country this week. I was in Florida and Missouri as we were pushing a full court press for back to school and the um, Delta variants are alarming, and the spread is alarming. And you've already said it's a pandemic of the unvaccinated. I'm not going to repeat what you or Dr. Fauci said. So let me just be personal for a moment, which is that vaccines are the single most important um, way of dealing with COVID. We've always dealt with, or since 1850, we've dealt with vaccines in schools. It's not a new thing to have immunizations in schools. And I think that on a personal matter, as a matter of personal conscience, I think that we need to be working with our employers, not opposing them on vaccine mandates. And so, you know, and, and all their vaccine policies. And so I said last week that I wanted to bring my leadership together, and we are this week, to, you know, revisit and to reconsider our policy that we passed in October about voluntary, that that the best way to do this was to do it volitionally. Now, let me just say, my members have stepped up. 90% of the teacher members have actually gotten the vaccine. 
Um, but I do think that the circumstances have changed and that vaccination is a community responsibility and it weighs really heavily on me that kids under yeah. 12 can't get vaccinated. So for teachers overall, as she alluded to, you know, there doesn't seem to be a high amount of vaccine hesitancy anyway. But in other unions where there is, this could become a very complicated question. And again, I don't envy being in the position of a union leader that has to face this dilemma. But I think this issue also points to the important roles uh, unions can potentially play in civil society as an intermediary body between the highest levels of our government and ordinary citizens. Some unions have made great grassroots efforts to educate workers on the vaccine and also make it more accessible to address some of the issues Jen spoke about. Some people may not trust the government and they definitely won't trust these CNN and MSNBC talking heads that are you know, talking down to them. But maybe they will trust their local union or their local union leaders. And I got the vaccine through my union, um, you know, my teacher's union. And, you know, again, I wasn't vaccine hesitant, but the way we did it, if you remember, you know, the show when I did the segment about um, the uh, ventilation and the fans they were doing and our union mobilized the day of action. And part of actually what we won from that wasn't just not going back um, too early. We also won that, you know, we would get the vaccine in March. Mm -hmm. That was something that we achieved through that action. And, you know, that just made it so much easier mm -hmm. for you to get it. There was a whole program set up. It was very smooth and well-functioning, you know, so um, I think that is the way to go. But it really speaks to like having a civil society. I mean, especially mm -hmm. if the welfare state is going to be so um, decimated, the state is going to be hollowed out. You know, unions play kind of that role of what is left in civil society that can reach down to workers who, you know, again, the government, if they're not reaching them, these kind of organizations have a big role to play in, you know, getting people vaccinated, mm -hmm. convincing them, educating them and, and things like mm -hmm. that. Yeah, I mean, I think that what is so unfortunate about this, I guess, current situation where I, I definitely echo your thoughts, I do not envy any union leaders right now who have to negotiate this minefield. Uh, but But for me, what makes it so unfortunate is that a year ago, six months ago, unions were at the forefront of the push for vaccination, right? Like, as you alluded to, lots of teachers unions, um, you know, in, in various states fought to make sure their members were eligible as soon as possible, were included in, you know, the designation of essential worker or whatever it took to get them to the front of the line. Um, I know that the United uh, Food and Commercial Workers, uh, which David Dayan is going to be talking about a little later, um, also, you know, had uh, huge efforts to not just educate their members, but, you know, text them, here's a link for you to register. Again, working with government officials and, you know, lobbying to make sure that all of their members were eligible, uh, running vaccination, you know, clinics, at the grocery stores where their members work or setting up, you know, clinics elsewhere and making sure that their members were able to get to them. Um, and I know that, you know, worker advocacy groups and unions that work with um, uh, like predominantly immigrant workers um, were also very instrumental in speaking to their members saying, you know, you should get vaccinated uh, if you work in a frontline job, if you're a farm worker, if you're an essential worker, you should get vaccinated and don't worry about documentation if you don't have it. Uh, don't worry about your family's documentation. You're not going to be deported or detained. You just need to get the vaccine and it's free and it's available to you. So, you know, I think just again, to go back to what you were saying about unions um, being kind of a bulwark against eroding public trust 
is really crucial, which raises the question, like, what's going on here? What happened? Can you explain why this, you know, fighting over employer vaccine mandates has suddenly bubbled up? Well, I mean, I think it's bubbled up because finally Biden is signaling that he might make this make this a requirement. Um, So, yeah, I mean, because I think before it just what wasn't really on the table. Mm -hmm. And so now, again, they've done a lot of work. I think there's been a lot of progress, but of course there still are just probably a a large amount of union members not vaccinated. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think now it's, you know, coming to a head because, um, you know, we're, we're looking at maybe another um, big surge in cases, like another hard fall and winter. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think, you know, it's being put on the table in a a much more real way now. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, it's like, I was just saying, you know, it's just, there's, there's no real easy answer because again, like it's very easy to say like, well, you know, just make people get vaccinated. But again, like technically when you're elected as a union officially, like you are there to represent your members issues, you know, interests and wishes. And it just raises this thing. Well, what if they're What if they uh, want something that is counter to what you as a leader might think is the best choice. Again, I doesn't, I don't think that means reject vaccine mandates. Um, I think that means that I, I'm not in a position where I have to make this decision, <laughs> you know, but it's complicated. But again, I mean, I think the unions that did more work on the front end mm-hmm. of like educating and mobilizing members are probably in a better position to face this now than others. Mm-hmm. Right. Like like uh, Randy Weingarten pointed out, uh, 90 percent of AFT members. I mean, that's huge. Right. 90 percent of right. AFT members being vaccinated. That's like an un- <laughs> I mean. I can't think of any other group in the U.S. that has that high of a vaccination rate right now, right? Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. 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 So. But I mean, to go back again to, you know, this kind of idea of public trust or uh, what you were saying about unions having to kind of fill the gap or like act as a stopgap when the state is absent. Um, again, you know, the U.S., Capitalists in the U.S. have been very intentional about undercutting unions, shrinking them down, just as they have with the social safety net. And that is a huge reason why public trust, as I said before, in the U.S. is so low. Uh, We don't have social institutions anymore. Unions are kind of the last shred of, you know, what used to be pretty robust social institutions hanging on. And I think that you're right. People have way more trust in, you know, not just their fellow shop members, but also their union leaders than they do in the government, let alone their, you know, employer. Um, So again, I think that it's an unfortunate situation, which, you know, uh, in my mind can be traced back to just decades of neoliberal austerity and, you know, shrinking down what should be public goods, what should be public institutions uh, to basically nothing, where we're now left with a completely desiccated social safety net uh, where, people are put in horrible positions. Right. And, you know, it's also like, there's a strategy point here. It's like, even if in your head you're thinking, if you're vaccine hesitant, you're a dumbass. Even if that's what you think, like, there's also the strategy of like, what's going to work? Like, do you you really think like that CNN host, that kind of lecture is going to work? Or do you think some kind of incentive program or maybe like playing the long game? I mean, there was someone actually on my block recently. Mm-hmm. It was actually more my girlfriend's doing than me. She's more <laughs> persuasive. But, you know, I mean, long story short, about four months ago, just against the vaccine, after, um, me- you know, many conversations over time, they finally were persuaded to do it. And honestly, like, it couldn't have happened any other way than mm-hmm. kind of like not being too pushy about it, mm-hmm. then knowing us and trusting us. Right. Um, I don't know. It's, it's just kind of like 
that's how it is. Yeah. Well, I was going to say one last note before we uh, bring our guest David Dayan on is uh, what you mentioned about uh, the flight attendants and how they've kind of taken, uh, I don't want to say neutral policy, but, you know, they're not going to act like they're supporting the employer vaccine mandates, nor are they going to make a big fight of opposing it. What they're doing instead is continuing to conduct outreach among their members. I think that uh, incentive of giving members who need to go get vaccinated extra time off. I mean, that's a perfect example of what I had mentioned in my segment of what the government needs to be, you know, making possible for everybody. Um, So, you know, not being a union member presently myself, um, I'm not perhaps in the best position to comment on what union leaders should or should not, you know, be doing with, as we've said, is a very difficult situation. Um, But just based on, you know, what we've been presented with so far, that seems like a good option. And I don't know if you have, Mm -hmm. you know, last thoughts on that. Um, As a union man. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, again, it's like, I, again, I don't have an easy, easy solution here. Um, I'm, I really am torn between mm-hmm. this. I'm like, you know, I think there maybe there are some things, some issues in general where like the answer really is like take a hard line and be like, we're doing this, mm-hmm, you know, and, mm-hmm. and maybe that is the best way. But there seems like there are a lot of things we can do, um, you know, to, to not get to that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think this is something really what interests me about unions the most is even just beyond this simple thing of wages and benefits is really their role in civil society. I think that's underappreciated. And, and when they were much, uh, you know, we were much stronger as a labor movement that really had a big effect on our society in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that shouldn't just be lost in general when we talk about uh, labor unions. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think that, you know, even though union density is notoriously low right now, that function that unions play is still so strong that every Democrat wants a union endorsement, right? I think that just speaks, I mean, it's, you know, to say that a union leader says, you know, vote for Hillary Clinton or whatever, and then all the members fall in line. uh, I I think that, of course, that is, you know, overstating the power of unions or overstating the power, overstating the power of unions as, you know, kind of a social force. But the fact of the matter is, as we keep saying, you know, if you are a union member, you are going to uh, you you know that the union is the entity that is fighting in your interests, right? Right. Yeah, and, and in the the last presidential election, I really don't think it's an exaggeration to say that like the mobilization of unions really mm-hmm. is what put Biden over the top. Right. Um, I think we we probably covered it back uh, when it happened, but you know, Unite Here especially was you know they had a really fantastic internal mobilization program, mm-hmm. um, and again, this is the reason Democrats still want union support and it is pretty incredible again considering how you know to be honest totally weak unions are today that they still again i mean adolf reed always says that it's still like about 14 million members right where else do we have that still you know um so it is still a force to be reckoned with yeah um all right well we were going to move on to David Dayan, but I think that he is having trouble logging on. So I think what we'll do now is go to Labor Paul, which I'm actually really excited about for today, since yes, it's true, they are my questions. Um, just as a disclaimer, the reason why I have submitted my own questions is not because we don't want yours. Definitely still, please go ahead and leave questions for Labor Paul in the comments. We still want your questions, so definitely feel free to submit them to Paul and we'll try to get to them the next episode. But the reason why I wanted to throw in two questions of my own is because I realized at one point that I sometimes text Paul 
and I'm like, hey, Labor Paul, can you answer a question for me? And like some like it occurred to me like we should just put that all out on air because other people might want to know too, right? right? So yes, this week I have two questions of my own. The first one has to do with Richard Trumka, who of course was the former president of the AFL-CIO, who unfortunately passed away last week. Um, lots of people called him the most powerful man in labor. Um, and, you know, I think this raises the question of, obviously raises the question of where the AFL-CIO is going to go next. Uh, and I want to mention that, you know, even before Trumka passed away, um, I believe that his term as president was expiring this year. So, you know, lots of people had been talking already about the future of the AFL-CIO um, even before last week. So my question for Labor Paul is, I think a lot of people are probably familiar in passing with Richard Trumka, but I was wondering if you could talk about what his legacy is and what losing him means for the labor movement. And then the second part of my question is, why will his successor be so important? And I know that some progressives have been kind of advocating for Sarah Nelson, who is the current president of the Association of Flight Attendants, to fill the role. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about, um, like I said, why leftists are pushing for her. Yeah, sure. Um, so first, you know, AFL-CIO, what is that? So that is the, it stands for American Federation of Labor and Congress of Industrial Organizations. So the AFL-CIO is the main labor federation in this country. Back in the 1930s, the AFL and CIO were separate. So they merged in 1955 to become the AFL-CIO. And Richard Trumka was head of the AFL-CIO since 2009. And I think his legacy is a little bit mixed and ambiguous. So Trumka rose through the ranks of the labor movement. He came from a family of coal miners in Western Pennsylvania. He went to work in the mines in the late 1960s. He rose up through his union local and became president of the United Mine Workers of America in 1982. Probably one of the highlights of his career was his leadership during the epic strike at the Pittston Coal Company over health care and retirement benefits, which lasted from April 1989 until February 1990. During this strike, Trump had demonstrated that he wasn't afraid to wage risky militant actions. And his strike was notable for its use of nonviolent civil disobedience tactics that were once common in the labor movement in the 1930s and, of course, were widespread during the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s. On April 5th, 1989, after working 14 months without a contract and negotiations stalled, the UMWA members employed by Pittston went on strike. The strike affects 1,700 workers in Virginia, West Virginia and Kentucky. That strike ended in a victory for the mine workers, one of the few big victories for labor during that period. Trumka became president of the AFL-CIO in 2009, and he took over at a time when the labor movement was in deep crisis. And we have to be honest and say that 12 years later, it has only gotten worse. 
His tenure has been criticized by some of the left within the labor movement for seeming to abandon this kind of militancy that was displayed during the Pittston strike. Uh, funding for new organizing dropped under his leadership, and many felt there was too much emphasis on lobbying Democrats with little to show in return. And I think some of these criti criticisms are valid and we should be taking them seriously. However, we should be careful not to place everything on his shoulders. We should keep in mind that the structural shifts in the U.S. economy that have put labor in this crisis cannot all be blamed on the head of the AFL-CIO. And these issues can't just be solved by a matter of willpower. And though, again, there's a lot we can prob probably criticize on this score as well, Trumpka overall did not shy away from bringing up issues of race and gender, even when controversial with his membership. As a minor from Western Pennsylvania, he seems to fit the snobby liberal stereotype of the racist white working class, but his actions told a very different story. For example, in the 1980s, he established a solidarity program with black mine workers in South Africa. He chaired the U.S. Boycott Committee of Royal Dutch Shell, which is one of the major companies that the apartheid regime relied on. And remember, this was at a time when our own government under Ronald Reagan labeled the ANC a terrorist group and did not support the anti-apartheid movement. This social justice sentiment, I think, was also on display during the 2008 Obama campaign. Now, I think all our listeners, we can agree that we did not get transformative change under Obama and his labor record was not good. But what's important here is that Trumpka was not afraid to name the issue, that there were many union members who were tempted to reject Obama for the sole reason that he was black. He made effective arguments about how racism divides the working class. Well, there is no evil that's inflicted more pain and more suffering than racism. And it's something that we in the labor movement have a very, very special responsibility to challenge. It's our special responsibility because we know better than anyone else how racism is used to divide working people. We've seen how companies set workers against worker. They throw white workers a few crumbs. They discriminate against black workers or Latino workers, and we all, we all end up losing. But we've seen something else, too. We've seen that when we have the courage, the good sense, the trade union values to cross the color line and stand together, arms locked, no one, no one has ever been able to keep us down. That's why we created the CIO. That's why industrial unions were the first to stand up against lynching and segregation. People need to know that it was the Steel Workers Organizing Committee, this union, that was founded on the principle of organizing all workers without regard to race. That's why the labor movement, imperfect as we are, is the most integrated institution in America. Now, I don't think that we ought to be out there pointing fingers and calling them racist. Instead, we need to educate them. During the last year of his life, he was laser focused on campaigning for the PRO Act, or the Protect the Right to Organize Act, which if passed would be the biggest breakthrough in labor law reform since the New Deal. So again, there are many valid criticisms I think we can make of his leadership, but ultimately it is never a good thing to lose someone who played such a big role in trying to build our labor movement. He was beloved by, not, by many, not just in our labor movement, but around the world. 
the former and hopefully future president of Brazil, Lula da Silva, sent his regards about Trumpa, Trumpka, saying, Richard Trumpka marked the history of trade unionism in the United States as the president of the AFL-CIO. Besides fighting for the rights of millions of American workers, he always had international attention and solidarity for the causes of the working class, supporting fair struggles in several countries around the world. I will always owe Trumpka and the AFL-CIO a debt of gratitude for the visit he did to me while I was in, in prison in Brazil and for the attention and solidarity he always had with Brazil and Brazilian workers. Trumpka will be sorely missed in the United States and around the world. To your family, friends, and companions, my condolences. Let's talk about what's what's next. Um, and as Jen alluded to, there is now a question of what is the future of the AFL-CIO and why it's important. And of course, it's important because the labor movement continues to be in crisis. Um, it continues to decline. I mean, there has been a slight uptick in strike activity. I think there's more public support for unions now than in a long time. But we are in a crisis. So uh, Liz Schuller, who is the current secretary treasurer of the AFL-CIO, will likely finish out Trumpka's term. And she's also the front runner to be elected next year to serve out a full time as president. Of course, for the last few years, there's been a lot of speculation about Sarah Nelson, who is president of the Association of Flight Attendants, running to become the next AFL-CIO head. Nelson has become kind of a labor celebrity, and much of the left wants her to run. And Nelson rose to prominence during the government shutdown, where actions of some flight attendants are thought to have been key in ending the shutdown. And during it, she proposed the idea of a general strike. Since then, she has often advocated for more strikes, for more militancy, and general strikes, as I mentioned before. She's not afraid to be close to the left. She speaks at DSA events. You'll see her on networks like Rising, Democracy Now!, and The Real News. She really does seem like a breath of fresh air in the labor movement. And Sarah Nelson is great, and there's nothing wrong with the left being excited about her. But we shouldn't see this race the same way as we would see a Democrat versus Republican or someone like AOC versus a corporate Dem. I don't think it would be fair to paint Liz Schiller as an enemy of the left of some kind or a sellout. And for some background about Schiller, she's the daughter of an electrician who was a member of the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, and she went to work for that union in 1993 as an organizer. One of her earliest big victories was helping to lead a campaign in California in 1998 to defeat an anti-union ballot referendum. In 2018, she played a leading role in mobilizing people in Missouri to reject an anti-union right-to-work law. But many people feel like Schuller may not be inspiring enough or dynamic enough to lead labor out of the wilderness. And Nelson definitely is not short on the qualities of being inspiring and dynamic. But I think there's actually a bigger question here, and we should consider whether we really want someone like Sarah Nelson to be head of the AFL-CIO. I think that you could have the best person at the top but it may not mean much because ultimately the revival of the labor movement is going to have to come from the bottom up. Maybe we want someone like Nelson to remain at the head of a large and strategic union. So her union, the Association of Flight Attendants, is part of the Communication Workers of America, which in many ways tends to be among the most progressive unions politically in this country. Continuing to build unions like that may be a more important task than winning leadership of the whole AFL-CIO. And Jen, unfortunately, I don't have inside information on whether she's going to run. But I mean, another thing I want to point out is that in the mid-1990s, there was um, a slate called New Voices that took over the AFL-CIO. Uh, very progressive politically. You know, they were talking about organizing new members, uh, being militant, more strikes. And I think it was all genuine. Um, but it didn't really turn the tide, as, of course, we know now. 
And again, I think it didn't come down to they didn't have the willpower to do it or didn't want to do it. I think it just kind of points to like this, this crisis is on many levels. Um, you know, we can't get out of it by getting a new AFL-CIO head. Um, but, you know, despite their best intentions in the 1990s, it didn't really lead to a big change. Um, so I just kind of say that as a caution that, you know, maybe the left, we shouldn't obsess too much about whether Nelson is in at the top or still in her union, because I don't think it's going to come down to who holds that one position. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you were talking about kind of the pros and cons of getting Sarah Nelson in that role, it made me think about a prior Labor Paul episode, uh, actually last week's, I think, when you were talking about shop stewards, and um, we talked a little bit about the qualities that make a good shop steward. Uh, You know, Sarah Nelson, I love Sarah Nelson. Um, She's, you know, as you said, kind of a labor superstar. Uh, She gets the left really excited. She's definitely not afraid of the left or, you know, is it counts herself as a member of the left or, you know, is very open to talking to the left. Um, And that's not nothing. But I think, again, the question is, are those qualities the qualities that we actually want in the president of the AFL-CIO, right? Maybe they are, but, you know, again, just as, just, just as, just in the same way that a, a good shop steward is not necessarily, you know, the most popular or dynamic person in the room, perhaps the head of, you know, the largest labor union in the U.S. Uh, shouldn't necessarily be, you know, a kind of like left superstar either. I don't know, uh, but that's just what that made me think of. Yeah, you know, and it's like... Um this problem comes up in different forms, but like, there's always this issue of, you know, the best talented people, if they all go to the top, Mm -hmm. you know, what's left in its wake. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, again, like a union like this, the, the, the government shutdown was actually very interesting Mm -hmm. because it was a very, very small amount of airline workers that took action Mm -hmm. that I think kind of forced it to a head, which really points to, to how strategic that union is in general and, and logistics in general you know, so I think having someone like Sarah Nelson there kind of dug in would be a good thing. And another mm-hmm. thing about CWA, again, if you remember when we had Les Leopold on, who talked about his runaway inequality education program, the union that has taken that the farthest has been CWA. Mm-hmm. Um, they use it the most. They have the most members engaged on it. Um, so, again, I think it's an open question. Again, I haven't heard a lot lately about whether Sarah will run or not, but I don't think we should obsess over it as if it's the most important question for us. Yeah. I mean, I think that if there's one takeaway from what you just said, it's that the revival of the labor movement obviously will be from the rank and file, from the bottom up, not from who's the leader, whoever that ends up being. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, now that we have heard about Richard Trumka, uh, I, that I think leads really well to my next question for you, which was, um, who is a figure from the labor movement, either, you know, somebody who is is active now or somebody from the past that you wish more people knew about? Oh, and by the way, I uh, gave Paul a sort of unfair stipulation, which is oh, that yeah, I right. said that Paul couldn't say Tony Mazaki. But who else, Paul? <laughs> and also, I mean, I put this restriction on myself to not say a Philip Randolph. So I forced myself to get out, get out of that. Um, but the person I'm going to name today is Maida Springer. And I recently wrote an article for Jackman about her. Really tremendous figure. She should be a lot more well-known than she is. Um, but she was a leader, not just in the International Ladies Garment Workers Union, but also speaking of the AFL-CIO, she became the AFL-CIO's main representative across Africa. And her life, to me, is a really great example of the social democratic 
civil rights and labor alliance that emerged during the New Deal and anchored black politics for decades. She grew up in Harlem at a time where it was almost impossible not to be affected by political developments. Her mother was an active member of Marcus Garvey's organization, the United Negro Improvement Association, but she was also ecumenical. She hosted all kinds of political meetings at the house that exposed Maida Springer to different political currents. Through her mother and, of course, her own personal experiences, she was developing a passion to fight racial injustice. But she was also exposed to how it was intimately tied to class. In Harlem in the 1920s and 30s, you had the Don't Buy Where You Can't Work campaigns, where Black communities would picket stores that refused to hire Black workers. Often, these were extremely diverse coalitions, including Black nationalists, Black communists, and Black trade unionists. It was through this that she met the person that influenced her the most, A. Philip Randolph. When Maida was still a teenager, she would go to her neighbor's house and help lick envelopes for her parents. She didn't know at the time that her friend's dad was a Pullman porter, and these envelopes were for leaflets for the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, which Randolph organized and was the president of. Springer said that Randolph made her realize the importance of interracial working class struggle and how if the economic situation did not change, no progress could be made for most black people. So she took up work in the garment industry and her timing was fortunate. A huge garment industry general strike took place in 1934 and this was transformative for Maida. She joined the Garment Workers Union and immediately got swept up in union work. There was a flood of new members joining and the union was always looking for people to step up and take leadership roles. And that's exactly what Maida did. Here she learned, she learned basic trade union and political skills like parliamentary procedure, handling grievances, understanding a contract. The Garment Workers Union was also unique in that it had an extremely vibrant cultural life. So for an example, by 1938, the union had over 600 educational groups that were attended by over 22,000 students across the country. The union offered film screenings, dances, parties, concerts, hikes, museum trips, and more. And in 1940, Springer became chair of the education committee and continued to build up one of the best education departments of any union in the country. And it was through the union that Springer found her calling in life. And this is an important point to make about how important the trade union movement was and still is. Think about what other institutions in the 1930s, besides maybe the church, could offer working class black women like Maida Springer these kinds of opportunities for fulfillment, for dignity, and for exercising leadership. And you see similar accounts from black women in other unions at the time, like the United Packing House Workers or Tobacco Workers Union in the South. So during this time, Springer also campaigned for the New Deal and was one of uh, Randolph's trusted field generals. She organized multiple rallies in the 1940s for a permanent Fair Employment Practices Commission, which addressed workplace discrimination. And then after World War II, she turned her focus to international affairs. She was selected by the Union to travel to Britain in 1945 to observe wartime conditions. And since this is one of the only videos I could find of her, let's look at her talking about that trip. As a member of the International Ladies' Garments Workers' Union, I'm one of the four women representing American labor going to Britain to learn from the women of England how they've overcome all of the difficulties entailed in managing a home, a job, taking children to nursery schools, and just how they feel about post-war, what their job will be, their relationship to government, since they have a much more widely uh, controlled 
setup than do we over here. But what made this trip especially important is she made contact with people that would eventually become leaders in the anti-colonial movement across Africa and the Caribbean. She met Jomo Kenyatta from Kenya, uh, George Padmore and Eric Williams from Trinidad and more. She realized that decolonization was going to be one of the most important political developments in the post-war world, and she wanted to be a part of it. She was put on an international committee of the AFL-CIO and was put to the task of helping develop the labor movement in various African countries. Just like in the U.S., she considered herself a democratic socialist. She rejected both capitalism and the Communist Party. She wanted to find a similar route in Africa. She wanted to help lay the groundwork for strong democratic trade unions that could help create strong, independent African countries. She summed up her goals like this. My view was that you were attempting to structure opportunities for African trade unionists to improve their skills so that at some point down the line, as independence became a reality, they could contribute something positive to that society. Springer played a role in many trade union programs that were developed throughout the continent. These programs uh, usually were intended to improve workforce skills and basic trade union consciousness. Some examples are a motor driver school in Nigeria, a scholarship program to bring African trade unions to the United States to learn from our labor movement, a union-sponsored cooperative housing program in Kenya, and a school for tailors also in Kenya. And there were many more uh, other things I could cite. So throughout Africa, Maida was known as a trusted and reliable source of help to the labor movement. However, it did become harder to main this, maintain this reputation as the AFL-CIO's international policy became more contradictory. As we now know, the AFL-CIO was part of the effort to undermine communist unions throughout the world, including in Africa. Springer herself got caught in between her desires for a democratic socialist path for Africa and the realities of imperialist efforts throughout the continent. When Springer came back to the United States, she was appointed as the Midwest director of the A. Philip Randolph Institute, which is created to serve as a bridge between the labor movement and civil rights movement. And she had noticed that many black communities were not aware of the opportunities that existed within organized labor. And she was disturbed by what she thought was an unfair reputation of labor for being part of the establishment and opposed to the civil rights movement. So she worked on educational pro programming to address this. She continued her activism both domestically and abroad until her death in 2005. But it is because of stories like hers that I really bristle when I hear people on the left make really oversimplified blanket statements about the labor movement always being racist and sexist. Her experience directly contradicts that. She wasn't naive. She experienced uh, plenty of discrimination in the labor movement, both for her race and her gender. But she also saw the opportunities that labor movement gave her to fight that very same discrimination. And I'll end this segment with a beautiful quote of hers from an interview that she did at the end of her life. She said, I have an unending love affair with the American labor movement. I make no apologies for whatever has found to be wrong with the American labor movement, but so much has been right that I will always be an advocate. To the degree that a government can be challenged and workers can have the right to help to determine their hours of work, conditions of employment, redress of their grievances, it's the labor movement that made this contribution on behalf of the working class. I remain a member of that class without apology. So that is my person for today. Again, incredible person, should be more well-known. And, you know, it's kind of interesting. This might sound a little cynical, but when I wrote when I wrote this article, you know, part of what I was thinking, I was like, huh, you know, this is, a, again, incredible Black woman ignored by history. 
And I really wonder if at some point the woke wokes are gonna the hyper wokes are gonna like try to reclaim her legacy. When if you look at so many of her quotes, again, like we always talk about, she would be called a class a reductionist. She really would. I mean, and you know, I included some of the quotes that are actually a little less controversial, but mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it's just kind of interesting to think about because I think with some of these figures, like they try to reclaim them. And I've I've kind of mentioned this about CLR James before, where I feel like, you know, he's his legacy is being reclaimed, I think, kind of in the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've, I've, I've been curious if this is going to happen with Made of Springer soon. That's yeah. part of why I wanted to go, get out in front of it and, you know, present, you know, what I thought was a real depiction of her life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, um, so two things. One is that this is exactly why I asked you this question. I knew that you would have something like this. <laughs> and in fact, you did. By the way, I love that uh, story about Maida uh, going over to A. Philip Randolph's house when she was young and like licking the envelopes. Right. <laughs> That's amazing. Right. Um, is that how you found out about her? Because you were researching like A. Philip, I mean, I, because you know everything about A. Philip Randolph. <laughs> you know, it actually came through, I was reading about Bayard Rustin. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, she was also involved in plenty just like general civil rights activity um sorry who's bayard rustin no i'm just kidding <laughs> i just wanted to see your face right well <laughs> that's the next next time yeah um, exactly yeah so i came across her there and i mentioned she was a labor activist i had never heard of her so i just you know started yeah. digging um yeah there's a a great oral history you know interviews of her yeah um where there's a lot of just you know gem quotes that you can yeah. find um class reductionist quotes just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I get, okay. So the final point I want to make, uh, just going back to what we were both saying earlier about the, the unions being really the rank and file is, you know, it's great obviously to hear about these kind of like overlooked or forgotten figures like beta, but like she would not have been able to do anything that she did without her fellow union members, you know? So right. I think I just want to throw that out there that like, for every, you know, uh, like unknown person that you uncover, there's going to be like countless others whose names never get mentioned at all. Right. And, you know, I think her story actually is a great example. of The point we were talking about, about unions role in civil society, because, mm-hmm. again, I mean, I'm always amazed reading accounts from the 30s and 40s. It's like where else in society during Jim Crow, both in the South and the North, mm-hmm. besides maybe some particular examples, um, are black people exercising this kind of political activity, yeah. leadership ability? I mean, labor was really central for that. And that is why, you know, in the South, during the 30s and 40s, the CIO, which was the Labor Federation, it was literally synonymous with, um, you know, anti-Jim Crow. Right. Like the racist politicians in the South, they knew the CIO, they, they, they regarded it as the same thing as like the civil rights movement because mm-hmm. in many ways it was. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, especially in this particular union, the garment workers, um, they had just a great, like, it was almost like an alternative society mm-hmm. in a way for workers that they had built up. Um, and that's just like, you know, so important. Yeah. Um, so that actually uh, would be a good segue to something that we are getting into with David Dayan. Unfortunately, uh, it looks like the tech issues are still going on. So I think what we're going to do is actually wind down the live stream. Uh, again, members, I'm really sorry. We're going to record a separate interview with him. Um, I don't know how we're going to get that out. Kale has appeared to let you know. Hey, yeah, sorry about this. Um, typic- this is like a weird thing that I don't think we've ever had uh, before, but 
But yeah, David, we'll, um, we're about to record a Zoom call with David in a couple minutes, and then we'll premiere the interview tomorrow night uh, for everyone, effectively. Um, so I'm sorry. <laughs> I wish like I wish this wasn't the case, um, and I wish I wasn't sick right now. But uh, it'll you'll you'll get your David, and um, yeah, I hope I hope you enjoyed. This is a very labor heavy show. Um, I hope you enjoyed it, but, uh, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) somebody enjoyed it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So thank you for turning, tuning into the Paul stream. Um, the, I, I do want to say again, uh, the, the article by David Dayan is really good. Um, this gives you a chance if you haven't read it yet to, uh, have a look at it before we talk to him and we air that interview again, really sorry that, uh, (laughs) this was not part of the live stream tonight. Um, but we will be back soon. Yeah. All right. So we'll see you soon. All right. Thank you guys. We'll talk to you soon.